So we're looking at Revelation 6 and 7 tonight. This can be found on the Black Bibles. Should have some around you on page 998. Page 998. Revelation 6 and 7. I'll read through uh, both chapters, and then I invite you to leave the Bibles open as we continue our study together. For those of you who haven't been here, this is the context. John is a pastor, and he's received a vision, a revelation, singular, from God. And that's a revelation for the seven churches that he pastors. And so he's written it down, and he's passing it on to these seven churches that are in Asia Minor an area of the Roman Empire, now modern-day Turkey. And so we're up to the point in the story where uh, there's a scroll, and the Lamb of God has taken the scroll, and everyone's really, really glad about that. We learned about that last week, about the moves of worship. But now it's time for the scroll to be opened, and there are seven seals on the scroll, and each seal needs to be opened, and that's where we pick up the story. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! And I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood and the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters, who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. When the Lamb opened the sixth seal, I looked, and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who is able to stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on any earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to damage earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those seals, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. It was the summer between my senior year of high school and my first year of college. And I signed up for a six-week program that our denomination sponsored called Summer Workshop in Ministry. That meant that some high school students from one area of North America would be sent to a church in another area of North America to work for that church. So I and a few other students from Western Michigan, which is where my home was, were sent to a burb outside of Chicago to work and live and be in that church for six weeks. And because this was the area before cell phones, I had made arrangements with my parents that I would call them every Sunday afternoon. Every Sunday after church, I would call them and we would check in. And so the first week was over and I called my parents. It was June. It was a beautiful day. 
And I called them, and I heard them talk about the things that they had already picked from the garden, and how great mom's dinner was, and what happened at church that Sunday, and they were all ready to just go chill out for the afternoon, and they were laughing, and they were talking, and I hung up the phone, and I cried. Because I wanted to be there. I wanted to be whole. I was living at the time with a widow and the one other female student on our team. And this widow, lovely person, but could not cook like my mother. She did not have a garden. She did not, you know, was not generous with the spices. And upstairs in the the bathroom that the other young woman and I shared, there was just a bathtub. There was no shower. And so I had to navigate that every day, like stick your head under there, figure that out. Is it all out? I don't know. And I had spent a week being nice to everyone. (laughs) Do you know how exhausting that is? Like everyone, I was like smiley and trying to be polite, trying to get along with everybody, and you know, trying to minimize conflict. I was exhausted. And then my family listened to mother, all giving each other a hard time on the phone, they're all chatting it up, and I'm like, Ugh. and some of you know exactly how that feels. You know, deep in your guts, what it's like to be homesick, to miss the cooking of your home country, to miss the geography of your home country, to miss, just wait, the weather in January of your home country. (laughs) You know what it's like to walk into the dining hall and think, well, this, this is fine. It will feed me. But it's not mom's cooking or dad's cooking or home. We all know that level of homesickness. And we also all know the deeper homesickness. The homesickness that hits us when there's one more black person killed by one more white cop. The homesickness we feel when there is one more person who creates trauma and tragedy in a shopping mall. When there's one more night of riot. When there's one more night where there is no peace. When one more friend is diagnosed. When we go one more day with our addiction. And we long for home. We long for ease. We long just to relax and find things familiar and be safe. Oh, we long for home. Revelation 6 is an accounting of the big things that have made the people of God long for home since the fall in the garden. Some people call these the four horsemen of the apocalypse. 
They're the four horsemen that bring in a lot of trouble. The first one comes in on a white horse with a bow, and any Roman would have immediately been afraid because the Romans were not the people who rode horses and shot bows. That was not their area of strength. The Parthians were the ones who were archers. The Parthians were the ones who had sacred white horses. The Parthians were the enemy. So here, right away, we have a representation of all the enemies that come from outside, all the enemies that threaten, that could sneak up on us, that just could come from the side and attack in ways that we are not prepared to defend. The second one comes out and is permitted to take peace so that people slaughter one another. This is civil war and domestic violence and roommate conflict. This is all the things that make people who should love and support each other turn on each other and snipe at each other and be short with each other and impatient with each other. The third one comes out with a pair of scales. And when it says a quarter of wheat for a day's pay, three quarts of barley for a day's pay, we don't immediately get that. But to pay a day's pay for a quart of wheat would have been astonishing, astronomically expensive. You could not support a large family with that. You couldn't really feed them well on three quarts of barley either. And there are some scholars who believe that the wine and the oil not being damaged means that the luxury goods, the things enjoyed by the few and the rich will be untouched. So this is the horseman who brings in economic disparity. This is the horseman who brings in poverty. This is the horseman who brings in inequality. And then the fourth one, death. With Hades right behind. And Hades here is a threat. It's the threat of eternal damnation. It's the threat of the underworld. It's the threat that you don't know quite exactly what's going to happen to you when you die. So death isn't the only threat, but right behind death, there comes this deep uncertainty about the future. And when the fifth seal is opened, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered. And this seems really weird. Like, are they hiding out? Like, are they, you know, cover me? What, what's going on? Well, when you made a sacrifice, when the priest would make a sacrifice on the altar, he would drain, they would slice the throat of the animal and drain the blood out, and the blood would go under the altar. So the symbolism here is that the martyrs are the sacrifices that have been laid out that they have been killed for the sake of the gospel, they have been killed for the sake of Jesus Christ, that they have been sacrificed. And it's their blood crying out. And what they cry out here are words that God's people have cried out from generation to generation to generation. How long? How long are we going to have to put up with this, God? Aren't you supposed to be almighty? Why is there suffering in the world if you're Almighty God? What's that about? Sovereign Lord, they call him. They name him as the one that rules, holy and true. How long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood? And we need to take a moment and pay attention to the response. 
because they don't just move on to the sixth seal. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who was soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. The message right here in the middle of Revelation 6 is that God is fully aware of all the evil in the world. He is fully aware of every injustice that every person in this room has ever suffered. Your sorrows and your sufferings and the nights that you cry out at 3 o'clock in the morning, what are you doing in my life? Those are not lost on God. He has a full accounting of all the evil in the world and he is going to bring justice in his time. That is a big lesson in the book of Revelation. God is up to something and it's on his time schedule. And we're like, oh great, you know, they just have to wait a little bit until what's completed exactly? Oh, more people are going to be killed. Oh, that's, thanks, great. But there's this sense of, that's not where the story ends. So just wait and rest because God's up to something big and the story doesn't end with death. Now, when the sixth seal gets opened, everything comes loose. Everything goes off the hinge. Everything is just crazy. And everybody who had been protected up to this point, the kings, the generals, anybody with any kind of power, they are now just as vulnerable. Everything that they had that protected them no longer protects them, and they are vulnerable to the judgment of God. Everyone, the text says, slave and free, is vulnerable to the judgment of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And that's because everyone is culpable. Every one of us is responsible for making someone feel a little less at home. Every one of us owns that. Every one of us is in danger of the wrath of the Lamb. I heard a story about two sweetmates, two sets of sweetmates, and the one set of sweetmates were kind of the early to bed, early to rise kind of people, had a schedule had labs, had a lot going on. The other people in the suite mate, eh, not so much, not so much. And the, the people who were the not so much people knew that it really bothered their suite mates when they would come home, particularly on weekends, late at night, early in the morning, and then they would take a shower, and then they would dry their hair, and they would do all this while their music was playing. And they knew it bothered their suite mates. And one night they came home, and they took their speakers and they put them right up against the door and cranked their music. Doesn't feel like home then, does it? I was talking with a friend of mine this week, a Korean-American. He's an alum of the college. And he said that when he was here, not that long ago, 
Someone who got a little short with him and didn't really know anything about him told him, you should be deported. And my friend looked at him and said, back to Los Angeles? <laughs> But the goal was to make him feel less at home. And I heard about a student, a student of ours who loves Jesus and she's understanding that she's attracted to people of the same sex. And when this became known to a classmate, someone who found out, he said to her, wow, there are, you know, there are schools where you get expelled for that. You're lucky you're not expelled. And she has not been smoking pot in her room. She has not plagiarized any papers. She has no behaviors that she has done, as far as I know, that would warrant expulsion. And his words made her feel less at home. Those are all blatant examples. But we do them too. Maybe a little more subtle. You see somebody coming on the path and you do this. You see somebody walking toward your lunch table and you put in your earbuds. You pretend to be suddenly really engrossed with something on your phone to avoid caring for somebody who needs caring. You see the person sitting alone at the meal table. Instead of going over there, you go over where it's comfortable. We all have our ways. We all have our ways of making the people that we live with and eat with and study with and work out with feel a little less at home, feel like this really isn't their space, feel dis-ease. All of us have done it. All of us have assumed that we were in charge of who gets in and who stays out. And because of that, all of us deserve death. All of us. We are all culpable. We are all responsible. We are all responsible for sin. We are all responsible for making others feel less than. We need to own that. The wrath of the Lamb should come right here. something really interesting happens at the beginning of chapter 7. The angel says, wait, before all this happens, before all this destruction takes place, there are servants of God. The Greek is slaves, actually. There are slaves of God out there, and we're going to mark them. We're going to mark them with a seal on their foreheads. They're going to be marked, and in being marked, they're going to be protected. In the writings of Paul, he talks about those who have claimed Jesus Christ, who say, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I deserve the wrath of God, but I claim the blood of Jesus. He said, as soon as you do that, you have the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, which is like a deposit that guarantees your inheritance when the day comes. That's the seal. 
And they put it on the forehead so everybody could see it. So it's an obvious thing. That's where you would make a mark if you wanted someone to know who you are or whose you are. And so they come and they mark 144,000. Now, for some of us, we're like, well, that doesn't seem like very many people. You know, like, am I in? Like, do I count? Did I, did I make the cut? But here's the cool thing. Myriad is the largest number in the Bible, refers to 10,000. A thousand is the next largest number. When the people who originally read this read 144,000, they would have been like, oh my goodness, that's astronomical, that's amazing. That's enormous. They would have been stunned by the number. And they would have known very quickly that it was 12 times 12, the number of the 12 tribes of Israel, the number of the 12 disciples multiplied, which made the number of all who belonged to the church of Jesus Christ, everyone from the dawn of time who has claimed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as theirs is marked. It is a complete number. It is a number of fullness. When Jesus went on earth, he prayed to his Father and he said, I have not lost any of the ones that you gave to me. That's what this is talking about. Everyone who has been chosen will be there. Everyone who receives the mark. Now, unfortunately, the mark does not guarantee you a happy life. Sorry about that. The mark does not mean you will graduate and immediately get a job. The mark does not mean you will never have cancer or a miscarriage. What the mark means is that the trials of this world will come and go, but your eternal destination is secure. And for the seven churches in Asia Minor who heard this, that was hope, that was life, that said to them, someday you will be home. And then, after this great image of, this, of the, the sealing, the mark of the seal, we're given an image of what home looks like. We've told you what home doesn't look like. We told you the pain of a homesick world. And now there's this image. This is what home looks like. You want to know what you're getting ready for? You want to know what's next? You want to know why you were sealed? This is it. After this, I looked. And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Now, every Jewish person who would have heard this, every Jew who turned toward Christ and was in one of these seven churches, would have heard palm branches, and immediately it would have had an association with a festival, a Jewish festival called Sukkot or the festival of the booths, or the tabernacles. This is an autumn festival. It'll happen in about mid-October this year. And the Jews would actually build little huts, little huts, little booths, and they would put palm branches on them. And during the week of Sukkot, they would live in the hut. They would at least take their meals out there, and if the weather was good, they would sleep out there. And there were three big symbols of the festival of Sukkot. First, the palm branches because everyone used them to, to make their booths. And the second big symbol 
was living water. Living water is water that keeps moving, like water that's in a river or a stream or a lake. It's a dynamic. It moves. It's not like, you know, water in a well that just gets collected and sits there. And the third big symbol was Psalm 118, verse 25, which they would say over and over again as they waved their palm branches, gathered all together in the temple. They would say, Oh God, save us. Oh God, grant us success. In Hebrew, those words are Hoshana. Hoshana, Hoshana. Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, save us. Rescue us, rescue us. And the whole point of the festival was to remember that for a significant amount of time, they were homeless. Between the time when they were in Egypt and the time that they entered the Promised Land, they were homeless. They lived in temporary shelters. They had to be able to pick up and move. They were vulnerable. If you've been out in the wilderness, you know how hot it can get. You know that there wasn't food out there. God had to provide them with manna and quail. They were incredibly vulnerable. And so during Sukkot, they build the booths, and they remember when we were incredibly vulnerable, God took care of us. Knowing that, let's look at the rest of this. Verse 10. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation, Hoshana, belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these, robed in white? Where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you are the one that knows. And he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for all of the people in these seven little churches that were fighting for life in a big Roman empire that wanted them squashed down, they were reminded that there was trouble that was coming. There was persecution that was going to come. They were going to watch their friends be dragged off to court. They were going to watch their friends be martyred. But at the end, when they came through the great ordeal, they would receive rest and a robe. They would be home. And because of this, verse 15, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will sukkot them, tabernacle them, build booths for them, shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of their throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, because they will finally 
be home. Home, at ease, settled, content. I was thinking about what life will be like when we're home. There's no homework. I just want that made very clear. But also, all of the regrets that we have are gone. The things you did in high school, done. The things you've done so far this year that you regret, done. The fractures that may have split some of your families apart so that dads don't always talk to moms, done. The pain that you've had in your romantic life, done. Constantly trying to figure out how to be an LGBT Christian in the 21st century, done. Worries about what am I going to be when I grow up, done. Trying to manage and control and limit the impact of sin on our lives and our own sin's impact on everybody else, just done. You'll be home. And all the food is going to be awesome. (laughs) And you're going to love it. And you're going to be able to sing Spanish songs really easily, even if that's not your first language. And you're going to be able to to worship with people who, who know how to worship for like three hours and don't get tired. And you're going to be able to worship with people who, are, who follow a liturgy really closely and, and love the order. And you're going to be able to learn and listen from everyone and hear their stories and find out what was it like to be you. What was it like to be you? And how does it feel to be home? Tonight, we celebrate the feast. We celebrate what God in Christ has done for us to bring us home. And we mark the fact that because God in Christ has done this for us, we work to make other people feel at home too. And so we listen to our friends who say black lives matter. And we listen to our friends who talk about rape culture and what that means. And we listen to our young men who don't know what it means to be a man and follow Jesus because they don't have enough models. And we listen to our people who are around us who have learning disabilities and for whom college is a huge struggle. And we make them feel at home. Because God and Christ did that for us. So look around. Everybody in this room has something that happened to them that makes them feel less at home. What can you do to lighten that burden? What can you do to welcome them home. This is your campus. The choices you make every day influence the culture of this campus. 
If you actively work to welcome people and make them feel safe and make them feel at home, you can have a transformative impact on 4,000 people. And that can ripple out into Grand Rapids, and that can ripple out into the state of Michigan, and that can ripple out into the United States of America, and that can ripple out around the world. Because that's what God does, people. With a changed life, he can change a room, he can change a suite, he can change a dorm, he can change a campus. So as we come forward and we take the bread and we drink from the cup, remember what God has done for you to say there is home waiting for you and I can't wait to get you there and you better bring some people with you. Our God welcomes us to the table and our God welcomes us home. Will you pray with me? We are amazed, God, that when we deserved your wrath, instead you marked us. And you said, because of the blood of my son, you are forgiven and you are free. And you are home. Thank you. We pray that as we take this bread and drink this cup, you, Holy Spirit, will prompt us for what we need to do differently tonight to make this campus feel like home. Give us courage. Give us compassion. We ask this through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he blessed God, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And after he blessed God, he poured it and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do this tonight with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We do this with the saints of all times and places. And as a reminder of that, we hear the creed spoken by them, and then we will say it together as directed by the video. I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe in God. Father Almighty. Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ.
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He descended to hell. The third day. He arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe. I believe. I, I, I believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Father Church. You can really say it. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. 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 And now we invite you to stand in body or in spirit and join your voice, whatever it looks or sounds like, as we declare this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We participate in the feast by coming forward at Loft, and so these sections and the, this part of the choir, you'll come down this aisle and then go back that way, and you will come down this aisle and then go back. You'll rip a piece of bread from the loaf and then dip it into the cup and then partake. The people who are serving will say, the body of Christ for you or the blood of Christ for you. You're welcome to say, thanks be to God or respond in some way. If you're a communicant member in your home church, you are welcome to participate in the feast here. You're all welcome to come forward and if you choose not to participate in the feast tonight, simply make a cross over your shoulders, and you will receive a blessing. If you need gluten-free bread, please come down this aisle and then ask me for it. I'll be here with gluten-free bread. Our Jesus says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke from me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come to the feast. <laughs> 